0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, in a world where race casts a shadow over everything, waving around a flashlight can illuminate some fascinating corners. In this case, an often overlooked aspect of racial awareness and racial tension, the fear among middle-class whites that poor whites were going to bring the race down. In today's episode, we talk to Jolene Hubbs, professor of American studies at the University of Alabama, about the role that class and whiteness played in shaping middle class American identity and how great literature reflected and at times refracted that societal phenomenon. Jolene Hubbs, today on the history of literature. <music> Hello, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. There is suffering out there everywhere, people. I feel you and see you, and my heart is with you, whether we've never met or whether we are close friends indeed. Hang in there. Things will get better. They're going okay for me here at the Jack Wilson Studios, at least at the moment. I'm feeling energized and ready for bear, as they say. Is that what they say? (laughs) Loaded for bear, if by bear, I guess you don't mean an actual living creature, but but the world at large. Literature. Time to dig in and be big and try to get a few things done. I'm loaded for life. Let's get started. Great show today. Jolene Hubbs is here, yet another smart woman who has agreed to join me for a conversation. I feel Blessed by all these guests. Emma Smith, Honor Cargill Martin, Jolene Hubbs, Marion Turner, coming up soon, Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris, Allison Strayer, and Samantha Rose Hill. And that is just in the last month. I'm not sure there's a better podcast out there, if smart women is your thing, other than me being the host, I guess. But really, are there, are there better, smarter guests on a podcast than that team of champions I just listed in one month? I doubt it. So if smart women is your thing, and why wouldn't it be your thing? No matter who you are. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> is there a better thing to be your thing than smart women? Well, this is the place to be. And today is no exception. Jolene Hubbs will be out here soon explaining just how the anxieties of middle class white folks led them to take some extreme positions when it came to poor white people and how literature, Southern lit giants like Charles Chestnut and William Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor worked in that tradition and resisted that tradition, resisted that stereotyping complicated it, as good literary authors do. And then after we have that shot in the arm, why don't we include a little chaser? Mark Chirino, our Hemingway expert and the host of the One True Podcast, will be here to choose a book to be the last one that he would like to read. Will he pluck something from Papa's corpus? (laughs) That doesn't sound quite right, does it? Willie, what else can we say will will he select a Hemingway title maybe the sun also rises or a farewell to arms or how about for whom the bell tolls how would that be for your last book to read maybe a maybe it's a book with the cover for whom the bell tolls and you open it up and find that it has no printing in it the pages are all blank and you flip through them all wondering what happened if the words slid off the paper somehow, as if that ever happens. You don't know. You're just speculating. And then you get to the final page, and it has a single word in black ink. The cover says, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and the final page says, V. And you nod soberly. Close the book and your eyes and your consciousness and await the journey to the next level. Well, spoiler alert, that's not the book that Mark chose, not my fantasy for whom the bell tolls, nor the one that Hemingway actually wrote. But what did Mark select? We will find out after we hear from Jolene Hubbs, which is going to start right after this. Okay, joining me now is Jolene Hubbs, an associate professor of American Studies at the University of Alabama, who studies the literature and culture of the U.S. South. She's here today to discuss her new book, Class, Whiteness, and Southern Literature. Jolene Hubbs, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Hi, Jack. So good to be here.
0: So when did your interest in Southern literature begin?
1: Um, I think... In undergraduate, is really when we can trace it to. Mm-hmm. I got sort of interested in. Misfits and outcasts, I guess we could say, mm, mm-hmm. and that probably coming up from childhood. I'm thinking of someone like Boo Radley, who, of course, I and millions of other people know not only from Harper Lee's novel, but from the film adaptation that came yeah. two years later, Robert Duvall. So Robert Duvall plays, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> such a I memorable... behind the door. <laughs> yes, exactly, such a memorable rendering of Boo Radley, and then. As an undergraduate, I was really interested in Carson McCullers, Mm, mm -hmm. who I suppose is one of the real bards of misfits and outcasts, um, with her stories about lonely people struggling to create meaningful relationships with other people. So I think it's possible to see a strain of this interest in the book, which argues that Poor white characters in Southern literature act as foils for the identities that middle class writers and readers want to claim for themselves. Mm. And so in that sense, I look at the aesthetic and ideological effects of presenting poor white Southerners as misfits or as outcasts.
0: Right. So my next question was going to be, what was the story that wasn't being told when you decided to write the book? But I can speculate from your last answer, it was the story of this, that there was a kind of poor or working class white character in literature that was kind of opening a door into the way that there was this tension between middle class whites and poor whites.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that those poor white characters can seem to play pretty outsized roles in some of those texts. Mm. And they can kick up a fair bit of anxiety, it seems like, in those texts. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To stick with To Kill a Mockingbird, the Yules, who live by the town dump and are social pariahs, seem to wield the power to menace the entire community, black and white alike. If we think about other texts that folks probably know, in part because all of them also became movies, in something like Deliverance, in which what's supposed to be an outdoor adventure for four friends from Atlanta turns into a nightmare of sexual assault and murder. It's poor white men who live in the North Georgia mountains who send the narrative in that direction. And I guess, lastly, and maybe most loomingly, Gone with the Wind. Mm. Gone with the Wind, it seems like it's the threat of Emmy Slattery getting hold of the O'Hara's mansion that is one of the main things that goads Scarlett O'Hara to try to keep hold of that mansion. It's called Tara. Emmy's a really minor character, but she plays a pretty major role in Scarlett's consciousness and in the story as a whole, it seems to me, in the novel when she pops up. The narrator pretty relentlessly directs disparaging language her way. She's called at one point a common nasty piece of poor white trash. Mm. And then we sort of go on. In the film, she has almost no screen time, but her one big moment, she comes on screen and the costume designer has put the actress who's playing Emmy in an outfit That is really larger than life and intended, I think, to convey bad taste. We've got a really small red hat with really big, I think, black bird wings, and there's a bow. There's a red and black plaid dress with a lot of trim. Right. It's covered in this braided trim that's shaped like zigzags. It seems like an exaggerated version of rickrack.
2: Ah. Yeah. which is
1: a lovely trim, but it's everywhere on this dress, and it's really big zigzags. And the whole getup is really just the opposite of understated elegance. And I also can't help wondering if there isn't a kind of sound logic to the trim with rickrack sounding an awful lot like riffraff.
0: Riffraff, yeah, Yeah, right.
1: and and in that way, we get in another dig at Emmy.
0: mm. Right. So it sounds like almost what you're doing is you're looking at a literature where they've identified someone as a villain or they're playing this part of, you know, this is the people we don't want to be around. These are the people who cause problems. These are the antagonists in our story. And what you're noticing is that we might accept, oh, it's it's because these are white people, these are racists or these are whatever the reason, it they're strivers or they're shiftless or they're lazy or something like that. And instead, you're looking at them from the position of being outcasts and othered, almost like there's a strain of literature that would use gay people as the villains or albinos as the villains or something like that as this is somebody who's supposed to make you feel uneasy. And so we'll use them in our narrative to kind of present problems for the protagonist, but you're seeing something deeper underneath that.
1: Well, I'm looking at those texts that present poor whites as a problem, and then I'm looking at a much smaller set of texts that seem to challenge Mm. those representations. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. And I'm looking
1: at how they do it and why they do it.
0: Okay. So let's start with the phrase, the race problem, which Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was like most people, who understood it in its typical sense as Southern efforts to curtail the civil rights of Black Americans, as might be used by someone like Frederick Douglass. But you found E.W. Kemble, who I was not familiar with, but I was fascinated by this example. So who was he and what did he mean when he illustrated the race problem in 1891?
1: Yes. So Kemble was an illustrator. He has a Cartoonish or caricatured kind of style. And he's probably best known for being hired by Mark Twain to illustrate Adventures of Huckleberry Finn.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But yeah, the picture I'm interested in is from a little bit after Huck Finn. And interestingly, this picture of a native born poor white man who lives in a cotton mill village in Georgia gets labeled race problem so as you say that's weird this picture is published in the 1890s that's the decade that saw the rise of Jim Crow it saw the Plessy versus Ferguson decision that put separate but equal in place until Brown v. Board dismantled it in 1954 it's a decade of segregation African-American disenfranchisement race-based violence so, as you've already said, in this era, the term race problem was most commonly used to make a claim about relations among people of different races. Right. Black Americans and white Americans. But labeling Kemble's poor white Georgian a race problem signifies differently. This man is a problem for the race to which he belongs. He is, mm. this caption seems to claim, a problem for whiteness.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. He's dragging down the race. He's got the scraggly beard or the unkempt hair. Or... That's
1: right. The whiskey next to him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The women are smoking tobacco. I'm thinking of Huck Finn and especially his father, Pap. Yes. So, So this is somebody, he was not alone in this, I guess. He happened to have illustrated something that Sounds like it was in common currency at the time among white people who were worried about this stereotype that they were employing. Yes. Mm, okay. So what exactly then was the problem? The problem was that middle class whites didn't know what to do with these shiftless poor whites who were so uh, ill-mannered and so on?
1: Yes. To some extent, the problem is actually an aspect of what W.E.B. Du Bois called the problem of the color line. Mm. Specifically, it's the problem that this depiction of what white identity can be presents to the Jim Crow social order that consigned black southerners to second class citizenship. The problem in a nutshell is how do you reconcile this white person in this image? with the set of claims about whiteness that were circulating in this era to justify, to buttress this discriminatory anti-black social order.
0: So it's almost like, how can we middle class whites, how can we justify segregation when we clearly have these poor white people who are not a credit to our race?
1: That's, I think, exactly what is going on Yeesh. in that image with that caption.
0: Yikes. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty ugly. Uh, yes. Although this is a time of great ugliness, so I guess I yes. shouldn't be so surprised by that. So and then it gets tangled up in the issue, speaking of ugliness, in the issue of eugenics. Mm.
2: Hmm. Uh,
0: so I think you described the example of Pap as a eugenics poster boy.
1: yeah. So let's, like, sort of establish eugenics is such a huge topic. So we're talking, in essence, about seeking biological solutions for what are, in fact, social issues. Mm -hmm. Specifically, for our purposes, the eugenic movement is looking for the seeds of people's social class in their genes. Yeah, Poor people and the supposedly genetic condition that eugenicists sometimes called hereditary pauperism came under the microscope, right, sort of literally and figuratively.
0: Right. So so these people, they didn't have money. And so it was hard to get an education and hard to have all of the trappings that the middle class expected good, respectable people to have. And poverty is a vicious cycle, and it would continue. And the eugenicists would say, well, it must be due to some problem in their genetics. It must be something that they're naturally lazy or naturally dumb, or there must be some natural explanation rather than the the explanation we might jump to today, which is just that they're born into this cycle of poverty.
1: Exactly right.
0: And so they would say, basically, here's the race problem. I have a solution. Eugenics. Yes.
1: <laughs> and eventually that solution becomes sterilization.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Of people like Pap.
1: That's right. Indiana in 1907, coming up with the first eugenic legislation, and then 1927 with the Buck v. Bell decision.
0: Mm. So before we leave Huck Finn, whatever we might think about Pap, he's produced a boy who's got some ability to change.
1: That's absolutely right. So... Papfin, Huck's dad, is absolutely a collection of traits that concerned eugenicists. We've got intemperance. We've got pauperism. We've got what they called vagabondage that they also called wanderlust. We've got criminality, of course. He engages in some thieving. But Huck Finn doesn't necessarily seem to inherit his father's bad traits. Mm -hmm. Given this, we might read the novel as treating environment as a bigger force-shaping character than heredity. The shift from the tutelage of his biological father to that of Jim, his central father figure, might account for Huck's goodness, his burgeoning, although still imperfect, morality and some of his other merits.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And Huck is given kind of an access to break that cycle. Yes. So do you have any evidence or any indication that Mark Twain might have been conscious of this? Was he known to have lectured against the eugenicists or anything like that, that it might have played some role in the way he designed Huck Finn?
1: Not that I know of, but certainly these ideas are circulating, for example, in the same literary magazines that authors are publishing in in the time. So if you're getting one of the high culture magazines in monthly subscription, The Atlantic, The Century Illustrated, monthly magazine, one of these magazines, you're seeing non-fictional essays engaging with this burgeoning pseudoscience of eugenics. And so these ideas are sort of in the air.
2: Mm.
0: So that is a really good example of what you were talking about, where it's not only that literature in maybe some other forms, maybe a popular uh, literature or the thoughts of the day as expressed in cartoons and so on might be expressing a, a stereotype about this race problem, meaning the middle class white anxiety about poor white people but also literature's ability to push back against it, that anybody yes. reading Huck Finn would be saying, okay, eugenics might think they have an answer to what they're calling a problem, but take a look at this. We're identifying the problem wrong. We sterilize PAP, we get rid of all the Hucks, but we don't want to get rid of the Hucks. We get, yes. If we get rid of the Hucks, we get rid of somebody who's pulled himself out of this world and has changed and grown. Yes. So let's take a quick break and then come back with more of these examples as we move through different time periods. Okay, we're back. So Jolene Hubbs, you cover four periods in your book and give some authors which exemplify this tension we've been talking about. So let's start with the Gilded Age. What did you see there and which author helped to give us this counterexample, so to speak?
1: Yeah, so... I do start with the late 19th century Gilded Age, and I talk about Charles Chestnut's Conjure stories in mm. that chapter and mm-hmm. how they push against both local color stories, the big genre he's working in, and then plantation fiction, sort of a subgenre there.
0: Mm-hmm. So local color stories would be kind of the, we might think of it as the dialect.
1: Yes, absolutely. Dialect stories that give us pictures, evocative pictures of particular places where folks are eating the distinctive foods there and perhaps engaging in distinctive practices because of their distinctive topography and both speaking English perhaps in a different way than people in other parts of the country. And Mm -hmm. also maybe using words that folks don't use in other parts of the country at the end of the 19th century. Americans love this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And so we've Mm -hmm. got scores of writers whose key to marketability is that they found this little pocket that they describe in these sketches or short stories.
0: And they're figures of fun, they're maybe stupid, they may be people who would rather sit on the porch and drink moonshine than work and so on. And it's it's kind of like an easy target for middle class whites to kind of make fun of these shiftless white people with their big families and their bare feet and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, and... Really, writers are all over the board, but because this is such a big genre that produces so much work, we've got really just a spectrum of representations in mm-hmm. this from mm-hmm. really questionable depictions of poor whites who aren't really especially believable because they're not given any merits to incredibly sympathetic, tear-jerking stories of folks without a lot of material trappings who are nonetheless really lovely people.
0: Mm. And what did Charles Chestnut do? How does he stand different from what we see in the more common versions of this?
1: So in contrast to a set of stories where poor whites are depicted as indolent and treated pretty harshly, which are some of the negative characteristics that I focus on from some of these local color stories. And that's what I call in this in other chapters, the classist tradition, we've got Charles Chestnut representing the counter-tradition. Chestnut's conjure stories mount a challenge to these negative representations, not by showing a bunch of energetically hardworking poor whites, but mm. instead by exposing how a person's class status shapes how that person's activity or their lack of activity is perceived. Mm. So in Chestnut Stories, there is a well-off couple in the frame stories that surround the Conjure Stories, and this pair spend their days reading, napping, the husband smokes a fair number of cigars, taking carriage rides, entertaining friends and relatives, relaxing on their piazza, and complaining that their employees, who do all of their work, are lazy. Now, how does right. this work? Well, these affluent folks understand themselves as enjoying leisure. And if we situate Chestnut's Conjure collection in its moment, it's published in 1899, the same year as Veblen's Theory of the Leisure Class. Mm. So I think we can read a sort of conversation between these texts in Chestnut's stories for these leisure class people not doing something reinforces their lofty social status Mm. so it's not so much what one does but who one is that determines whether you're in danger of being perceived as lazy
0: Right. The thing that this calls to mind to me, maybe I've been watching uh, too much Succession and The Crown and, and things like that, but it's people who are born into this. They're just born lucky. And they cast aspersions on the people who aren't. And it's easy to shine a spotlight on them and say, well, what have you done? What work are you doing? You were born rich. And and you have all this, you're maintaining your conception of yourself by knowing what fashion to wear or how to throw a good party and what kind of drinks you should serve and things like that. But those are just markers. Those aren't really values or they're not indicative of any kind of hard work or other personal qualities that are admirable.
1: Yeah to a certain extent, back to Emmy's dress, right? Yeah, um, She right. only has that dress because she has come into money after the war. But we're meant to see that even when you have money at a period when actually Scarlet doesn't, you don't have the taste to mm. choose the right dress.
0: Right. And again, you talked about the anxieties that were being expressed. And one of them might be that your social position is being usurped by people who have money but who don't have the background you do or the way of speaking or the manners or or something like that.
1: Absolutely. And that is a big anxiety in the postbellum South mm-hmm. when the former mm-hmm. aristocrats find themselves poor. And the responses to this are incredible. Charles Chestnut has a novel in which formerly prosperous, now struggling white people say, We may be poor, but not poor white. Our blood will still be of the best.
2: Mm, right. So,
1: again, that look at okay, well, even if we've lost the money that used to be the foundation on which our status was built. Let's look at something else.
0: Right. Okay. so let's move into the next one. And I'm going to give your chapter title for this one because I want you to explain what it is we're talking about here. We're in the Great Depression and your chapter title is Slow, Sweating, Stinking Bumpkins, William Faulkner and Modernism. So who are the people that are typically portrayed during the Great Depression? Who are these slow, sweating, stinking bumpkins? And then what did Faulkner do to upend that conception?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. Of course, it takes me a whole chapter to answer that. <laughs> but let me sort of talk about some of the things that I get into with that series of terms. Mm-hmm. Faulkner is, of course, known as a modernist and known to a lot of folks as a writer who's challenging. The novels present challenges to readers because Mm -hmm. of their formal, atypical, or experimental properties. So my argument is that As I Lay Dying, which is the novel I focus on, engages with these questions about poverty in both the story that it tells, but also in the form that it takes. Mm. And so It's sort of a good book to think with to get a handle on how some of Faulkner's works embody the modernist mantra, Form Follows Function. Mm -hmm. The novel has an experimental structure, one that, among other things, eschews linear narrative progression in favor of a form that mires readers in a certain event or at a certain point in the text, by offering several narrators accounts of that action or of that event rather than letting them forge ahead. This, in my view, writes the poor white protagonists' experiences of social and economic stagnation into the body of the text.
0: Mm. By giving some of them a voice or by by mirroring the experience they were having?
1: So it mirrors the experience For the readers. And that's one of the ways I argue that the text engages with poverty. But another formal factor that's important is the first person narration. The Mm -hmm. fact that we have poor white Southerners telling their own stories in their own voices.
0: Mm -hmm. We've gotten away from a kind of Tolstoyan omniscient narrator coming at us from a position on high and explaining things to us and observing and also providing a built-in analysis. And it's that it's kind of making the, the readers do a lot of that work.
1: That's right. And especially because we have stream of consciousness. And so we're struggling, as we do with any stream of consciousness narrator, to make sense of their thoughts. But then also because we have these poor white characters, we're seeing the richness and the complexity of their thoughts.
2: Mm, mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what was the middle class white anxiety at this point? Was it the same as what we saw earlier? Well, I guess during the Great Depression, maybe the anxiety was, well, there are people starving. Are we supposed to feel guilty about this?
1: So lots of anxieties in a given moment. I think one thing we can think about in this period, because it's the modern era, is people are eager to be modern, to be up-to-date, to to be Mm. avant-garde. But Mm -hmm. as you know, the Depression makes that increasingly difficult. As we move from the Jazz Age to the Great Depression, folks may just not have the financial wherewithal to be up-to-date on all fronts. And so I argue that representing poor whites as backward, as antiquated, as out-of-date gives the middle class people around them who may not be in dramatically different material circumstances a leg up by making them seem then more with the times more modern
0: so it's i always say this about life in dc because people's salaries might not be that different from one another they can't use wealth as this big marker of distinction so they use power and they look for all these ways where they'll say I'm closer to the senator than you are. I'm somebody who gets invited to this dinner party and you don't. And it becomes a kind of currency. And for these people, it sounds like the currency was, well, I'm part of the 20th century looking forward. And these other people, the unwashed masses are stuck in the 19th century with their horses, (laughs) and so on. And I'm, I'm in the world of machinery and artistic developments and so on, even if it turns out that the wealth that they might have once had has disappeared in a stock market crash.
1: That's exactly right. And in Faulkner's novel, I trace that out through even particular objects. So when the Bundrens leave home with their matriarch's body in its coffin, the coffin has been made by one of the family's sons and the neighbors all know he's a carpenter and admire his carpentry and so they admire the coffin and as they go further out of their own rural community and deeper into the city and in this case, the city is just a sort of town in Mississippi, right? We're not heading into New York City and skyscrapers. We're heading into a place that is markedly different from the smaller farming community in which they live, but not the most modern place on earth. Folks start perceiving. The coffin, the wagon, and everything else is really ramshackle and run down. So it's being seen with different eyes, it seems like.
0: So that's a question I kind of had because as I've been talking about the middle class whites, I've kind of in my mind been conflating middle class whites in the North and middle class whites in the South. And is that how you conceptualize them as well? Or is this a middle-class Southern population who's trying to be taken more seriously by Northern-class whites or or a Northern-class whites who are even more concerned with drawing these distinctions and so they're using the poorer Southerners? Or is it a unified class or are you seeing a tension between the North and the South here?
1: I think for the most part, I'm looking at how... A definitely regionalized class position, that of poor white Southerners, signifies to the nation as a whole. Mm. So in some Mm -hmm. particular cases, we're looking at, if we're looking at history more than literature, for example, we might be rooting it more in the Southern middle class. But for the most part, I'm looking at the fact that, again, to return to the kind of looming narratives that we started with, books and movies that everyone knows, those have presented a picture of poor white Southerners not to the region simply, not even just to the nation, but to the world. Mm. Um, I mm-hmm. think of all of the Gone with the Wind posters with the title in other languages pointing us to the fact that it is an international phenomenon. Yeah, And similarly, how many Millions of copies in other languages of something like To Kill a Mockingbird have been sold. So I think this picture of poor white Southerners does class work at a national, potentially even an international to some extent level.
0: Right. And we've given literature a lot of the credit for upending this, but we should probably give Hollywood a lot of the blame for creating it.
1: <laughs> well, again, there are other movies that we could think about that I think challenge these depictions but these ones that i pulled out for the most part my text you know looks at the classist tradition which i find tends to be pretty big in the eras that i look at it in but then part of the reason i'm looking at for the most part a single author pushing against it isn't necessarily that there aren't some other people pushing against it but also that i just kind of had to make these chapters manageable right when they've got you know sort of a stream and then a fish swimming upstream in each case to make sense of
0: yeah okay so let's talk about our next fish flannery o'connor who is writing during the civil rights era so what does she face what's the conception that she's pushing against and how does she push against it
1: so o'connor is writing alongside a lot of other southern white women in the civil rights era, stories that to a greater or lesser extent have been understood as engaging with their moment. Mm -hmm. And part of what I'm interested in in this chapter is how at a moment when civil rights activists are, for the most part, taking on unjust institutions, the bus Mm -hmm. system Mm -hmm. in Montgomery, Alabama, the... Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, these institutional forces, we get a lot of stories that are giving us individual racists located on the ragged margins of Southern society. So here we're back to Bob Yule and figures like that. Mm -hmm. And so again, I I don't choose O'Connor because she gives us anti-racist heroes the goal in each chapter isn't to show us there's someone who gives us the exact opposite right that must be right.
3: right
1: what i suggest is that o'connor shows us how middle-class racism was taking shape socially and psychologically in this period by sort of peeling back the psyche the consciousness of some of her middle-class characters
0: mm-hmm showing us the complexity and maybe the truth, that the truth is not in the stereotype of the stereotypers. There's a lot more gray area there, and the lines are a lot blurrier.
1: Right. That the difficult truth is that we can't isolate racism to a single class, that white people across the social spectrum can be racist. And so over identifying it with a given class may distort the workings of injustice writ large that probably take the cooperation of a broad swath of people.
0: So racism, the middle class anxiety is, well, we don't want to be accused of being racist. So we're going to say that That racism is something that's reserved for these poor southern whites, that that's where it lives. It doesn't live in in the housing policies of northern cities or in the courtrooms and the police and, and so forth of anyone that we're associated with. It would only be in those people and they're the racists.
1: Absolutely. And it's no accident that this is in the 50s and 60s during the civil rights struggle, right? I think the writing is on the wall. Change is coming. And so this would be a great time for folks like Harper Lee and Lillian Smith and Eudora Welty, who I offer as the tradition in that chapter of saying... Look over here at what these folks are doing, right? Don't look at folks closer to where I am.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to save the last one for people who will go and <laughs> and buy your book, "Hungry Women and Horny Men," and that takes us to the economic boom of the 1990s. And you look at yes. Dorothy Allison and Barbara Robinette Moss. So when we look at the world today and we look at the contemporary literature. Would you say there's a kind of truth in literature that we don't often hear when we listen to politicians and other pundits talking about things like this?
1: I guess no, unfortunately. I'm not sure that literature has a sort of truth-telling mm. possibility that other forms don't. But I do think that literature plays a unique role because imaginary characters often have a profound effect on what people believe or how they picture or understand other people. Right. And here, unfortunately, I needed to diversify my answers a little bit. Living in Alabama, I guess it's hard to escape Harper Lee, one of the state's most famous writers. And so I was thinking again about To Kill a Mockingbird, because one of the measures of this book's power in shaping people's thinking is that In a survey asking people what book had made the greatest impact on their lives, Harper Lee's novel was ranked second. It was topped only by the Bible. Mm, So given this, someone like Bob Ewell, whose full name we should remember is Robert E. Lee Ewell, has presented millions of readers with a picture of a poor white man who is a relentless villain. He's a liar. He's a racist. He spends what little money he has on liquor so that he insufficiently provides for his children. We've got evidence that he physically and sexually abuses his eldest daughter. We could go on and on. The same decade that that novel is published in the 1960s, a man in Virginia named Richard Loving went to court seeking the right to live lawfully with his wife, a multiracial woman named Mildred, in their home state in Virginia. Richard Loving was, in the words of his own lawyer, a, quote, redneck. He was also a plaintiff, along with his wife, in the 1967 U.S. Supreme Court case Loving v. Virginia, which overrode laws prohibiting interracial marriage. But more people know about the fictional Alabamian Bob Ewell than know the story of real-life Virginian Richard Loving.
0: Mm-hmm. I like the way you turned that question around on me that literature because the way I was asking it was almost as if literature was just another just another form of discourse just another you know that that it was more complex or it could have characters who were ex- exhibiting a kind of tension and and Almost like they would be the best talking heads on the Talking <laughs> Heads show. And instead, it really is about the way we consume literature and what literature does to us. And And you might be watching something and against your will find yourself rooting for the underdog who might be a person. It might be a black person or it might be, you know, these other examples that I was giving before that you might be rooting for the the couple who's of the same sex, or you might be rooting for the couple who's of mixed race. And y- you find yourself feeling something and feeling something in your heart. And-, and it resonates with you in a way that wouldn't be how you would necessarily come to that if you were just approaching it with your mind and and mm. being appealed to logically. But you're being appealed to for something different and, and in your humanity. And when people read a a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, it's not like they're listening to the positions as they're set forth by different people of different political stripes. They're reading a story about a little girl and her father and the town that they live in and this experience that they're all having together. And you find yourself moved in ways that might end up changing your mind on things. Mm Mm-hmm. The speech came out of this fascinating book you've written and this fascinating discussion we've been having. So Jolene Hubbs, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure.
0: Finally today, we hear from Mark Chirino, who's been here a few times to talk about Hemingway. After one of our talks, I asked Mark a special bonus question. Okay, we're joined now by Dr. Mark Chirino, who is an expert in Ernest Hemingway and the host of the One True Podcast. Dr. Chirino, this question comes to us from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you ever read. You can choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
3: Wow, what a... Uh, profound question and a morbid yeah. question, uh, but that, <laughs> uh, so this is the night before my execution. Is that what yeah. is that your
0: or or the night in the uh, the comfortable place at the age <laughs> of one hundred and twenty years old? And <laughs> yeah, let's
3: just say I'm going to be reading very slowly. Uh, whatever my yeah. last book is going to be, uh, but I would say it's a, it's a great question, and the answer would have to be Hamlet. I don't think there is a text that speaks more profoundly about the passage from one life to the afterlife, Uh, talks more about consciousness, the relationship between human and human, human and God. Um, I think that, I mean, I think any last book that I ever read would have to have the passage there is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it yeah. is not to come. If yeah. it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. And I think that if I read that the night before uh, my passage into the grand egress, I would feel enriched and possibly even comforted, uh, excuse me, reconciled, with what was about to happen, you know, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. Uh, I think I'm going to go with, even as a professor of American literature, I know that's blasphemous, <laughs> but I'm going to go with Hamlet.
0: Yeah. There's also something that I was getting chills when just thinking about Hamlet. I had not considered that one before. It is a great choice. There is something in thinking about that famous soliloquy in particular, and To Sleep Perchance to Dream. Mm -hmm. The idea that Shakespeare felt that and felt it strongly enough and vividly enough to put it in such memorable language and that he made the passage and that whatever fear you might have, you are not the first one to walk down. It might be the first time you've done it, but that doesn't mean you're the first one who's ever done it. And if a great man like Shakespeare has, um, you know, made that journey, then it's a, a journey that all of us can uh, feel like we yeah. have the the confidence and the strength to make.
3: Well, what you're describing is, so when Hamlet says that, uh, the quote that I, I just mentioned, at the end of his speech, he says, let be, you know, it, he's like, this is a natural process. It's going to happen. Even though, uh, it's about to happen to Hamlet in a rather unnatural way. He is atoned and reconciled, and he says, well, we defy augury, right? Let's, let's let it happen. And there is a kind of a, a beatific state, a comfort. And uh, Jack, I have to tell you, I would need that at that moment. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, I am... Sorry for putting you in this frame of mind, but I am thankful to you for being such a good sport and answering the question. Dr. Mark Chirino, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. And that's going to do it for the History of Literature today. I hope you enjoyed that episode. My thanks to Mark Chirino of the One True Podcast, and of course, to Jolene Hubbs. Do check out her book, Class, Whiteness, and Southern Literature. I think you will. Enjoy it. Speaking of enjoying things, I expect you will enjoy the episodes we have in the works. We're going to grow old with The Graduate, the movie, and the novel. And we have an expert in the works of Don DeLillo coming up soon. We'll take a trip to literary New Orleans and a trip around the world with Langston Hughes. We have one of the world's leading experts in fairy tales who is going to tell us how they work and what it's like to devote your life to those things and... We'll look at objects and how they reveal the world of Asian American life as presented to us by a poet and visual artist from Seattle. So please do follow us to make sure you don't miss out. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.